So for my podcast, I need you to say sea bathers eruption in an Irish accent. <laughs> Give me your best go. Sea bathers. <laughs> <laughs> I need a sea sea bathers eruption. No, that was good. That was good. Try again. Sea bathers eruption. No. Do it one more time. Sea bathers eruption. Thank you. This is Zoe Hazen, and you're listening to Catch All, a Beacon production out of Palm Beach Atlantic University. This episode is going to be all about the itches we get, either from stings, allergies, or even metaphoric itches, like from a burst of creativity in the middle of the night. Why? Because I recently had a really bad reaction to something where I was itching all over. And the best part about podcasts is that they're a place for storytelling and for sharing big ideas and for venting. So this episode, inspired by my desire to complain, will explore the strange reactions and and interactions we have with this very deadly and dangerous universe we carefully navigate. Act 1. Sea lice. If any of you have ever had an allergic reaction, they typically make dramatic and unexpected entrances. Sometimes you know exactly what the catalyst to the reaction was, like you take a bite of something or brush against something and your body goes into full defense mode. And immediately you're like, yep, crap, I'm allergic. Sometimes, though, you have absolutely no idea what in the world the culprit could be. That's where I was a couple weeks ago. I woke up one morning and my body was covered in these tiny little hive-like bumps. Not to get too gross, but I really mean covered. From my neck down to my knees, I looked like a spotted gecko. Take it from my brutally honest boyfriend. How would you describe my appearance when I was covered in the sea lice things? Biblically leper-like. My first thought was that it must be laundry detergent, that my body had somehow crossed over an allergic threshold and tipped into an, an intolerance. So naturally, I rewashed everything that I owned in allergy-free detergent. I rewashed every item of clothing, my sheets, and took a hearty dose of Benadryl followed by a big old nap. No big deal. I'm not a stranger to hives, so I thought that I had this all under control. But the next day, no change. There was pain everywhere. The bumps were red and swollen and I had to itch constantly. I made a frantic visit to the nurse who, after some thought, came up with a potential answer to this mystery. Her diagnosis was completely foreign to a Midwesterner like myself. Ever heard of sea lice? If you're not from Florida, you probably haven't. I hadn't. The condition actually has a bunch of names, my favorite being sea bathers eruption, which I always want to say in an Irish accent for some reason. That sounds so much cooler that way. Sea bathers eruption. See what I mean? Anyways, it's a bizarre and nasty little condition that is given to innocent swimmers by baby jellyfish. It's important to note at this point that sea lice have absolutely no correlation to head lice. Thank goodness. That's a completely different Pandora's box that I am thankful I didn't open. But sea lice happens when shifts in the ocean currents bring in baby jellyfish, larvae essentially. They're invisible to us in the water, barely the size of a flake of pepper, if even. They sting when trapped underneath a swimsuit or when when any pressure is applied, like when drying off with a towel. And guess what? I wore both a swimsuit, duh, and dried off with a towel, duh, when I went swimming a few days before. And here is the best part. You don't know you've been stung until up to 24 hours after. That's right. It's the silent revenge of baby jellies. Google.com said, via Wikipedia, that Sea bears eruption lasts for about two to four days in most cases. In severe cases, it can be up to two weeks. But guess what? Your girl didn't start seeing improvements until day 14 of this experience. It's after six days of steroids and pretty much buying out the company that makes topical Benadryl. I am definitely going to suggest an edit to that Wikipedia page. Florida Water is just getting over Hurricane Irma, so we can consider this entire saga the sequel to our previous episode. And the water was kind of murky, so I guess I can't fully blame all of this on Mother Nature. 
but this kind of felt like a personal attack. I was with like seven other people and no one else had this unfortunate event take place as I did. It's as if baby jellies across the ocean had martyred themselves to make a point, and I was their stage. And made a point they did. I felt like I was burning alive for two entire weeks. Not to be dramatic or anything. You know how when you, when you get a sore throat and on hour four of your sore throat you forget what it was like to ever swallow normally? That's what this experience was like. With sitting, showering, standing, breathing, and wearing clothes. For all my other fellow sea dwellers out there, if you're worried about this experience, which I would maybe be a little cautious about, the best way to avoid sea lice is to check lifeguard postings, which I did not, to shower immediately after swimming, which I also didn't, and to wash your swimsuit after swimming in the ocean, which I didn't do either. So hopefully following those guidelines will spare future reactions for anybody else. Finally, at last I'm on the tail end of this all. The stings are fading very slowly, but finally fading. And as they do, I will I sit and reflect, and I have crafted for us a few takeaways to make this into a learning experience for all. Here's what I came up with. You don't have to be big to make an impact. There's strength in numbers, and not all baby animals are worthy of our affection. Act 2. Action-Reaction. So sea lice wasn't really much of an allergy, but it kind of felt just like one. And it was weirdly specific too, like a lot of allergic reactions are. I chatted with some of my peers about their weird allergic or otherwise strange reaction experiences. The stories I got were pretty diverse, from silly to serious. It was at my hometown, like in Wellington where I live. I went out with friends, we went to Duffy's, and it was during like karaoke night. And so I, like, and I want to eat healthy, so I asked for like, a lettuce salad, kind of, it was like weird. It was basically like a lettuce, basically like shape as a bowl. I was eating it and all of a sudden, after I finished it, I was fine. It was just like, I was just really, you know, dehydrated. So I was just like, I need water, drink water. And all of a sudden later on, like me and my friends went to Walmart and apparently, like I started getting highs. Apparently there was pecan and I was like, I was getting like allergic reaction to pecan. Have you ever had a pecan before that experience? Or is that like your first time having them? I thought I was never allergic to anything, but like I had pecans before. Yeah. I don't just quite, like, just, yeah, it. no, no, it's it just like so all of a sudden, and it was just like allergic reaction to pecan. I don't know if it's the fluke or is it like or just the pecan. So it's like probably uh, depending on what kind of pecan it was. Yeah, maybe it was just Duffy's pecan. <laughs> it's like specific pecan they like, have. I used to like love um, slushies and snow cones, like the cherry flavor, and it had a lot of red dye in it, obviously. Yeah. And so my parents started noticing whenever I would have one of those, I'd start like acting irritable or mad so it's kind of weird and yeah I'm just not I can't eat red dye. Liak, I get migraines from gluten. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How'd you find out about it? So I found out about it because I got oh, ever since like in middle like middle school like elementary school I always got really bad migraines yeah and I didn't know why the doctors like didn't know why um, so and they were so bad that I like couldn't even like get up sometimes so then I worked at a summer camp last summer and I had some campers that were allergic to gluten and I I like knew oh, yeah, people were allergic to it, but yeah. I didn't really know like to what extent. So I asked them like what happens if you accidentally have some, and they said that they get like really bad headaches. And I'm like, I've never heard of this. So then I was like, well, I'm gonna cut gluten out for like a month and then like see what happens. And I used to get them two times a week, two to three times a week. That and awful. I stopped getting them. Oh my goodness. So I didn't get yeah. So I went the whole month and I'll get one migraine. I had no idea. And if I had just known that that's like what was causing it, because like. I went years getting like two to three a week and now 
I don't get them ever. My allergic reaction to penicillin, which is like internal, you yeah. know, which is actually like a medical issue. Yeah. And I, I mean, there's nothing that can help with that except like avoid it. Yeah. So, but yeah, I like broke out in hives from like from my neck to my legs, and I had like unbelievable joint pain. It hurts so bad. That's what you were saying. I can't imagine. Cause like I don't have joint pain, but yeah, it was it was pretty bad. So, so. you like you like I have a nap. You, you had to like go to the ER then and they like neutralized it? Actually, I went to the ER and they said, oh no, because we actually asked them, we said, is this like, an, like a medicine allergic reaction? Because I actually had a sinus infection from my allergies. Yeah. So I ended up being in the hospital. I know, I know. You used to be like in bubble wrap. <laughs> right? So I was there and they said, oh no, no, it's not allergic reaction penicillin. And I was like, I, I think it is because yeah. it gets worse after I take this. Mm -hmm. And they're like, no, no, no. So they actually overdosed me that night. And I was, it was really bad. And like, they they thought I was gonna like pass out or die or something. Like it was really bad. So. Act three, inspirational itches. Sometimes I wake up at like 3 a.m. in the morning because like some random idea just popped into my head and I have to write it down like now. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh crap, oh that's such a good idea. And I, and I write it down and it's pretty sick. And then I can share it with like other people and see what they think about it. But most of my ideas happen like on the fly or at 3 a.m. at night. That was one of my friends from journalism, Kashmir Jackson. His response to my allergy question got me thinking. I've had a lot of experiences like this too, where inspiration strikes out of nowhere and you just feel this drive, this itch to write it down so it isn't lost to the wind. A lot of creatives are like this, but there's actually a few different beliefs around it. Take the author of Eat, Pray, Love, Elizabeth Gilbert. During a TED talk, she talks about how people in the Western school of thought used to look at creativity as something apart from the person, an external force that helped along with creative endeavors. I have borrowed this audio from her recorded TED had talked. Um, ancient Greece and ancient Rome, people did not happen to believe that creativity came from human beings back then. Okay, People believed that creativity was this divine attendant spirit that came to human beings from some distant and unknowable source for distant and unknowable reasons. The Greeks famously called these divine attendant spirits of creativity daemons. Socrates famously believed that he had a daemon who spoke wisdom to him from afar. The Romans had the same idea, but they called that sort of disembodied creative spirit a genius. Um, which is great, because the Romans did not actually think that a genius was a particularly clever individual. They believed that a genius was this sort of magical divine entity um, who was believed to literally live in the walls of an artist's studio, kind of like Dobby, the house elf, um, and who would come out and sort of invisibly assist the artist with their work and would shape the outcome of that work. So brilliant, there it is, right there, that distance that I'm talking about, that psychological construct to protect you from the results of your work, you know? Um, and everyone knew that this is how it functioned, right? So the ancient artist was protected from certain things like, for example, too much narcissism, right? If your work was brilliant, couldn't take all the credit for it. Everybody knew you had this like disembodied genius who had helped you. If your work bombed, not entirely your fault, you know? Um, everyone knew your genius was kind of lame. 
But as time progressed, human thought about creativity shifted. And then the Renaissance came and everything changed and we had this big idea. And the big idea was let's put the individual human being at the center of the universe, right? Above all gods and mysteries. And there's no more room for like mystical creatures who take dictation from the divine. And, and it's the beginning of rational humanism. And um, people started to believe that creativity came completely from the self of the individual. And for the first time in history, you start to hear people referring to this or that artist as being a genius rather than having a genius. Gilbert's point is, what if we believed, if only as a mirage, of these geniuses, these daemons, as a separate part of the creative process, if only to relieve some pressure on the actual person doing the creative task? You know, I think that allowing somebody, like one mere person, to believe that he or she is like the vessel, you know, like the font and the essence and the source of all divine, creative, unknowable, eternal mystery is just like a smidge too much responsibility to put on one fragile human psyche. It's like asking somebody to swallow the sun. She then goes on to describe the creative process about flashes of inspiration. This is a part that made me think about the creative itch. Take a listen. Utter maddening capriciousness of the creative process, a process which, as anybody who has ever tried to make something, which is to say, as basically everyone here knows, does not always behave rationally, and in fact, can sometimes feel downright paranormal. Um, I had this encounter recently where I met the extraordinary American poet Ruth Stone, who's now in her 90s, but she's been a poet her entire life. And she told me that when she was growing up in rural Virginia, she would be out working in the fields, and she said she would like feel and hear a poem coming at her from over the landscape. And she said it was like a thunderous train of air, and it would come barreling down at her over the landscape. And when she felt it coming, because it would like shake the earth under her feet, she knew that she had only one thing to do at that point, and that was to, in her words, run like hell. And she would like run like hell to the house, and she'd be getting chased by this poem, and the whole deal was that she had to get to a piece of paper and a pencil fast enough so that when it thundered through her, she could collect it and, um, and grab it on the page. And other times, she wouldn't be fast enough, so she'd be like running and running and running, and the, she wouldn't get to the house, and the poem would like barrel through her, and she would miss it, and she said it would continue on across the landscape looking, as she put it, for another poet. And, um, and then there were these times, this is the piece I never forgot, she said that there were moments when she would almost miss it, right? So she's like running into the house and she's looking for the paper and the poem passes through her and she grabs a pencil just as it's going through her and then she said it was like she would reach out with her other hand and she would catch it. She would catch the poem by its tail and she would pull it backwards into her body as she was transcribing on the page and in these instances the poem would come up on the page perfect and intact but backwards from the last word to the first. <laughs> So uh, when I heard that, I was like, that's, unbel you know, that's uncanny. That's exactly what my creative process is like. <laughs> it's not at all what my creative process, I'm not the pipeline, you know, like I'm a mule. And the way that I have to work is that I have to get up at the same time every day and like sweat and labor and like barrel through it really awkwardly. But even I, in my mulishness, even I have brushed up against that thing you know, at times. Um, and I would imagine that a lot of you have too. You know, like even I have had work or ideas come through me from a source that I honestly cannot identify. And what is that thing? And how are we to relate to it in a way that will not make us lose our minds, but in fact might actually keep us sane? Gilbert is by no means advocating for the firm belief in fairies. She is just suggesting that we separate creativity from the creative. 
And I think she's got a point. We've all had brushes with an idea so much larger than ourselves, or our insight seemingly flashed down upon us from nowhere. And that kind of pressure to carry out this larger-than-life idea is enough to crush a person if they believe that it's all on their shoulders. Maybe I choose to believe it to be divine inspiration, and Gilbert crafts some belief of a creative helper. But either way, we are both speaking about an inspirational itch, something that stops you in your tracks and you are spurred to write it down to acknowledge it. We watched this TED talk in my creative writing class my senior year of high school. Our even-keeled, notoriously laid-back writing teacher then had us spend the rest of the class period drawing out what we thought our demons might look like if we had to dream up one. I visualized what my creative inspiration might look like if it materialized in front of me, and what I drew on that paper two years ago, in various colors and sizes, was a bunch of teeny, tiny jellyfish. And that's all for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you haven't heard our first, check it out. It's called Hype, and it's all about when Hurricane Irma came through Florida. We had a front row seat. We'd love to connect with you guys. If you want to find us at catchallpod, that's C-A-T-C-H-A-L-L-P-O-D, on Twitter, or email us at catchallpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear story ideas, comments, or anything else you might want to say. Also, I'd like to extend a huge thank you to this audience. As of right now, our previous episode, the very first one ever from Catch All, got over 100 listens. That is so awesome. But before I sign off, let me say, here's to all the curious, the open-hearted, the ones who are willing to put aside their own voices to cultivate a mind that yearns to listen. Here's to you. Thanks for listening. <laughs>